this victory here is the beginning of the end for Donald Trump. Uh, well, from your mouth to God's ears, Senator. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. It is not. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. In Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI. Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN. Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids on WPRR. In New Orleans on WHIV. Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ. In Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN. Thanks for not screwing things up, guys. In Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX. Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR. And Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com, where I am happy to report, at least so far today, I've heard no problems, none, zero, no problems at the polls on Tuesday in the New Hampshire primary. Where oh, all, wow. Yeah, I know, right? Nice. Where all voters voted on hand-marked paper ballots. And other than in uh, a couple of towns where they are reportedly trying out electronic poll books in New Hampshire for the first time, albeit with paper poll books as a backup on hand smartly, there were no reported problems signing people into the vote, no problems actually casting those votes, no problems that we know of counting those votes, at least not yet, not that I'm aware of, with the usual caveat that sometimes problems from both Election Day and uh, in the tabulation that follows, sometimes those problems do not reveal themselves until days or weeks uh, or even longer thereafter. But for today, Desi Doyen, yes, I'm sure you're uh, relieved to know Unlike following the uh, first-in-the-nation caucuses in Iowa, we have some actual results to report from the first-in-the-nation primary in New Hampshire on Tuesday. Uh, In a state, by the way, that Donald Trump lost in 2016 by a very slim 2,700 votes to Hillary Clinton in the general election. Uh, After, by the way, she had lost it to Bernie Sanders in the primary that year by a whopping 22 points. Bernie Sanders did not win by 22 points this year, but we will get to those results in a moment. Uh, And then we will be joined uh, by a former career senior veteran of the Department of Justice, of the U.S. Senate, of the U.S. court system. 
to shed some light and get her reaction and explanation for the major, and I mean major, crisis that is now unspooling over at least the past 24 hours at the U.S. Department of Justice, where four line prosecutors in the Roger Stone case abruptly quit on Tuesday, quit the case. One left the department entirely following an unprecedented intervention by Donald Trump's attorney general, Bill Barr, and yes, by Donald Trump himself in what would most likely lead to immediate impeachment proceedings in any other presidency, I suspect, in history. But, but that's not the world we yeah, live in now. No, apparently not, since, uh, you know, it's not even a week since Donald Trump was acquitted in his fixed impeachment trial. And uh, he has been on a rampage ever since, and it is pretty scary. But first... Since he has broken, you know, virtually every lever of government and our Constitution that might have been used to hold either him or his corrupt attorney general accountable, I need to turn to New Hampshire and what Americans are planning, are hoping to do about all of this come November amidst this indescribably dark moment, frankly, in American history. Bernie Sanders won New Hampshire's presidential primary on Tuesday, according to unofficial results, edging out moderate rival Pete Buttigieg and scoring what AP is describing as the first clear victory in the Democratic Party's chaotic 2020 nomination fight. In his Tuesday night win, the 78-year-old Sanders beat back a strong challenge from the 38-year-old former mayor of South Bend, Indiana. And while it may be the first clear victory in the 2020 nomination, as AP reports, it was actually a narrower victory for Sanders over Buttigieg than, uh, than in the Iowa caucuses, where Sanders defeated Buttigieg in both the first and uh, first round of voting and the final round of voting by more than his reported victory in New Hampshire on Tuesday night. In the first round of voting in Iowa last week, at, in numbers which really aren't being contested, uh, it's the math done to convert those votes into shares of delegates that is largely in question. So in that first round of actual voting, Sanders beat Buttigieg by almost three and a half percentage points in the final round of the Iowa caucus voting after supporters of non-viable candidates had shifted to their second place uh, uh, preference. Sanders still defeated Buttigieg by 1.4 percent. In New Hampshire, however, on Tuesday, Sanders appears to have edged Buttigieg by just 1.3 percentage points. But I guess because the reported results came out uh, to the media fast faster, I guess, uh, you know, never mind the fact that those results have never actually been checked in New Hampshire by humans for accuracy of uh, tabulation by the state's 20-year-old, totally hackable, frequently error-prone, Diebold-made optical scan computers that counts most of the ballots in New Hampshire. Uh, so we don't know if they got it wrong or right, but I guess uh, the media see that as a clear victory. Everything's fine, nothing to worry about, nothing to check, nothing to audit, nothing to count. Now, for the record, New Hampshire is one of the few states in the nation with a sizable number of ballots that are actually counted by hand by human beings at the precinct on election night where the results are reported to the public 
at that at those precincts before the ballots are transported back to uh, back to the state headquarters. That occurs in about 40 percent of New Hampshire's towns. And it's done, by the way, by unpaid volunteers at the close of polls who count each and every ballot by hand in front of everybody, proving that, yes, the gold standard for American democracy is actually achievable. It is completely possible. As usual, a reminder that these results are largely unverified by humans at this point, other than those towns that hand count in New Hampshire and uh, perhaps uh, may always be at this point unverified unless a candidate requests an actual recount, which does not seem likely at this hour. According to the unofficial reported results, then, as of Wednesday morning, Sanders got a bit more than 75,800 votes to Buttigieg's just over 72,000 votes for a difference between the two current leaders of about 3,700 votes out of about... 300,000 votes cast on the Democratic side on Tuesday. So it was a close race. As Sanders and Buttigieg celebrated, Amy Klobuchar scored an unexpected third-place finish behind Buttigieg by about 14,000 votes. Uh, But she had, let's see, 19.8% of the total. That was behind Buttigieg's 24.4%. Uh, But she was the only other candidate to finish in double digits uh, percentage wise in New Hampshire. As the New York Times Trip Gabriel, who covers uh, the 2020 race for The Times, uh, as he tweeted at one point on Tuesday night, as results were coming in, he said, quote, number one story of the night, Amy Klobuchar. Number two story of the night so far, Pete Buttigieg coming closer to Bernie Sanders than expected. Um. (laughs) <laughs> but that's not a big story that Bernie Sanders actually won? <laughs> Correct. Michael Aria, okay. independent journalist, said, where does the person currently winning rank in terms of stories? Fair enough. Uh, though uh, one story that uh, Bernie may not like to have told is that when he won the New Hampshire primary in 2016 over Hillary Clinton, it was by more than 22 points. Uh, here it was 1.3 percentage points. Uh, In that case, of course, in 2016, there were fewer candidates. But even with that much, much bigger victory in New Hampshire in 2016, uh, he did end up losing the nomination to Hillary Clinton. So it seems fair to say that nobody should be counting any chickens yet at this point. Yeah. There's still like many states to go. Yeah. Like many. Nonetheless, Klobuchar, uh, she wins a ticket out of New Hampshire and on to Nevada, to the Nevada caucus next week and theoretically beyond it to the South Carolina primary the week after and maybe even to Super Tuesday just three days later after South Carolina in more than uh, a dozen states on Super Tuesday, March 3rd. The future for the fourth and fifth place winners is a bit murkier. Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden posted Well, disappointing fourth and fifth place finishes, respectively, and we're on track to finish with zero delegates out of New Hampshire, uh, where I think you have to get more than 15 percent to earn delegates. AP suggests the New Hampshire vote gives new clarity to a Democratic contest shaping up to be a battle between two men separated by four decades in age and clashing political uh, ideologies. Sanders is a leading progressive voice having spent decades 
demanding substantial government intervention in health care and other sectors of the economy, Buttigieg has pressed for more incremental change, preferring to give Americans the options of retaining their private health insurance while appealing to Republicans and independents who may be dissatisfied with Trump. Warren, who spent months as a Democratic frontrunner, was optimistic in her uh, outlook, in her speech after the results came in as she faced cheering supporters Tuesday night, describing herself as a unity candidate and declaring our campaign is built for the long haul and we are just getting started. Well, we will see. While Warren made clear she intends to remain in the race, Sanders, uh, well-financed and uh, with a loyal army of supporters, has cemented his status as the clear leader, at least for now, uh, of the race and of the progressive wing of the party. Meanwhile, Buttigieg must now prove he can attract support from voters of color who are critical to winning the nomination as well as the presidency this November. And unlike Sanders, he still has multiple rivals in his own ideological wing of the party that he needs to contend with. That would include uh, Klobuchar. And by the way, AP is saying uh, he, he, unlike uh, Sanders, I would say that Elizabeth Warren is still in this thing and Sanders does still have to contend with her, at least those who support her, uh, who might otherwise support uh, support him on the progressive side. In any event, on the more moderate side, Buttigieg's uh, uh, folks he must contend with include Klobuchar, whose debate performance last Friday is being credited for her late surge in New Hampshire and her growing national following. Uh, and, you know, I, I thought she did fine in that debate on yeah. Friday. Uh, maybe it was her best to date. Oh, I would definitely say it was her best to date. But I didn't see anything special in it, to be frank. Uh, she was fine. And I, I, I think I'm still missing what folks are seeing that led to this surge in New Hampshire. Well, do you have any better idea of that than I do? What I think it might have to do with is it's folks who are sort of in the moderate, centrist, corporatist, uh, conservative, Democrat area mm -hmm. group trying to settle on somebody that they feel can have experience and also bring in other voters. And, you know, it's still the moderates trying to figure out the Republicans. Republican wing of the Democratic Party? As a, <laughs> Basically, yes. You know, it's still the same fight between moderates and progressives. But they and have Buttigieg, uh, who is do. sort of filling that same lane, but maybe they want a woman, which then gives them uh, yes. Klobuchar. They're still seeking uh, somebody who they feel can can cover all of those bases, and it's still the same, the same battle between moderates and progressives. Are you going to go big? Or are you going to go slow? Also, if you want someone who is uh, experienced in government, but still in that moderate lane, and you fear that Biden is out of this thing, then you might choose Klobuchar instead of choosing Pete Buttigieg after three years of, you know, seeing what it's like uh, having someone who has no experience in the federal government running the White House. Well, there you go. Uh, Biden, for his part, uh, considered for months to be the front runner here in this uh, contest, uh, largely based only on national polling that we have instructed for a long time to take with a huge grain of salt for several reasons. Uh, he was uh, clearly wounded by his disappointing uh, finishes now in the first two nominating contests. Coming in uh, fifth on uh, in, in New Hampshire, uh, he promises strength in uh, South Carolina. We will see if he's right. Uh, and then there's also New York Mayor Mike Bloomberg, uh, not on the ballot on Tuesday, 
But he will be beginning next month when the contest reaches states uh, offering hundreds and hundreds of delegates. That after Bloomberg declared his candidacy late in the process, he chose not to compete in the first four nominating contests. Uh, at least three candidates dropped out in the wake of uh, Tuesday night's uh, results. That would be moderate Colorado Senator Michael Bennett. Did you know he was still in it? Former Massachusetts Governor DePa- Deval Patrick, uh, who I suspect most people did not even know was in it at all. He was a late entrance in, entrant in the contest. Uh, sadly, he was also the last of the African-American candidates in the race. And also... Sadly here, because I thought that uh, he brought a lot of fresh blood and uh, completely interesting new ideas to the race. Andrew Yang uh, dropped out as well after New Hampshire. And I, you know what? I hope that he gets a top job in the next Democratic administration. Uh, as I don't know, the you know secretary of new ideas, <laughs> the innovation czar. I don't know. I thought it was a just a breath of fresh air to have him on that debate stage, have his new ideas that nobody else was presenting for good or bad, uh, but just like fresh ideas. I thought it was pretty cool. And fresh ideas, fresh ways of, of looking at the problems that we have and ways to deal with them. Yeah, he brought a lot. He injected a lot of energy and a lot of new stuff. He did. Into these old fights we seem to be continuing to have. Uh, with the So at the end of Patrick, uh, Deval Patrick and Yang and Bennett campaigns, that leaves, I think, uh, well, Hawaii Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard is the only contestant considered to be a person of color in the race. She came in seventh place in New Hampshire with 3.3 percent of the vote, just after Tom Stiers at 3.6 percent, uh, even after Stiers had spent obscene amounts of money on TV ads in New Hampshire. Uh, she also finished just before Yang, uh, who received 2.8 percent. Uh, Deval Patrick was barely noticeable with uh, just over a thousand votes and 0.4 percent, though he did outpace uh, Michael Bennett from Colorado, uh, who did not even crack a thousand votes in New Hampshire. Uh, having already predicted that he was going to take a hit in New Hampshire after his uh, distant fourth place finish in Iowa, Biden essentially uh, left the state early. He traveled to South Carolina Tuesday before polls even closed, I think, in New Hampshire. He's betting uh, his entire candidacy at this point on a strong showing in South Carolina, where he hopes to be boosted by support from black voters. Once again, we will see if that comes to pass. In the modern era, no Democrat has ever become the party's general election nominee without finishing either first or second in New Hampshire. So not a good sign for Biden uh, or Warren uh, or even Klobuchar, for that matter, if you believe in uh, history. Uh, Sanders, however, has now done both, finishing first place, uh, well, at least if you consider how voters voted in each state, if not how delegate numbers were apportioned, with the questionable math in Iowa giving Buttigieg a two-delegate lead uh, in the delegate count uh, for the moment, even if that edge will almost uh, be, is almost currently imperceptible, um, And more so as the race proceeds in the week ahead, as candidates got to get to nearly 2000 delegates to become the party's nominee. But Sanders and Buttigieg were on track uh, to win the same number of New Hampshire delegates each. That would be nine apiece, 
With most of the votes now tallied, uh, Klobuchar is behind them with six. Nobody else took any delegates. Warren, Biden, the rest of the field were shut out because they failed to reach that 15 percent threshold. So that puts uh, Buttigieg in a slim two delegate lead in the overall count with 23. Uh, Again, perhaps thanks to bad math in Iowa, followed by Sanders at 21. Warren, Klobuchar and Biden follow the overall delegate count with eight, seven and six delegates apiece, respectively. Uh, So most of the action, of course, was on the uh, Democratic side. Donald Trump easily won New Hampshire's Republican primary with eighty five and a half percent of the vote, though. Former Massachusetts governor Bill Well took almost 10 percent of the vote, nearly 14,000 of them um, in uh, to uh, Trump's. What was it? One hundred and twenty nine thousand or so. It is noteworthy that more than 15,000 Republicans voted against Trump in the Republican primary between Weld's votes and uh, another couple of thousand who voted for other candidates. Again, this is a state that Trump lost to Hillary Clinton in the general election in 2016 by just 2,700 votes. So the fact that 15,000 Republicans were willing to show up and vote against him, that could be a significant data point. In Iowa last week, before Congressman Joe Walsh dropped out of the race, Trump took 97, more than 97 percent of the vote. But here he was off that mark by about 12 percent. So uh, that apparent small, though noteworthy, dissatisfaction with Trump could certainly play a part in November when New Hampshire's crucial four electoral votes will be uh, very hard fought by both eventual nominees. We don't create the news. We just report it. Uh, It brings me uh, no joy to move on to our next story on the astounding, unprecedented crisis now underway at the U.S. Department of Justice as Trump continues his reign of vengeance Lisa Graves, former deputy assistant attorney general at the U.S. Justice Department, joins us next to discuss this still unraveling and frankly frightening story. That's next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance, now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Welcome back. Brad Cass, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Of course, at any other time in American history, uh, this story would almost certainly have been the top news story today and and perhaps for several weeks and months, and it may still. Uh, But given the importance of replacing this dangerously and increasingly authoritarian presidency, I thought we would lead with the New Hampshire results and whatever the voters' plans may be to replace this man as soon as humanly possible. But on Tuesday, several moves by the Trump administration made clear that this runaway train of a presidency is indeed the national emergency that I have long described it as. With a full-blown internal crisis now threatening one of the nation's previously most revered institutions, the U.S. Department of Justice. 
According to Washington Post last night, all four career prosecutors handling the case against longtime Trump confidant, advisor and dirty trickster Roger Stone, who was convicted for lying to officials during the Robert Mueller special counsel probe, they all withdrew from the legal proceedings on Tuesday and one quit the Department of Justice entirely after the DOJ signaled it planned to undercut their sentencing recommendations for Trump's longtime friend. These sudden and dramatic moves come after prosecutors and their superiors had argued for days over the appropriate penalty for Roger Stone and exposed what some Justice Department employees say is a continuing pattern of the historically independent law enforcement institution being bent to Trump's political will. Almost simultaneously with that news, Trump decided to revoke the nomination of a top Treasury Department uh, uh, nominee. Uh, that would be his former U.S. attorney in the District of Columbia, who had supervised the Stone case when it went to trial. The cascade of controversy, according to the Post, began Monday when career prosecutors handling the case recommended that a judge sentence Stone, convicted in November of obstructing Congress and witness tampering, to anywhere from seven to nine years in federal prison. His was the last uh, conviction secured by special counsel Robert Mueller as part of the investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election. The president suggested angrily on Twitter in response that Stone deserved a more lenient treatment. Trump tweeted early Tuesday, this is a horrible and very unfair situation. The real crimes were on the other side as nothing happens to them, cannot allow this miscarriage of justice, said the president of the United States regarding an ongoing case. Hours later, then, a senior Justice Department official told reporters that the agency's leadership was shocked by the prosecutor's recommendation of seven to nine years and would soon revise it. One by one, then, the career prosecutors, two of whom had worked on the Mueller investigation, filed notices in court of their intention to leave the case entirely. Their asking to do so was highly unusual and suggests they could not ethically affix their names to the government's position. Trump then doubled down on Tuesday night on Twitter again, alleging the prosecutors, quote, cut and run after being exposed for recommending a ridiculous nine year prison sentence to a man who got caught up in an investigation that was illegal. The Mueller scam. So the Mueller scam, according to the president of the United States, uh, the Mueller probe was a scam and it was illegal. Trump also raised questions about the judge in the case. He said, is this the judge that put Paul Manafort in solitary confinement, something that not even mobster Al Capone had to endure? How did she treat crooked Hillary Clinton? Just asking, he tweeted. Well, in fact, Judge Amy Berman Jackson didn't treat Hillary Clinton at all, to my knowledge, since Hillary Clinton was never charged with wrongdoing for anything, even after three years of Trump controlling the Department of Justice. Uh, the judge did, however, preside over Manafort's case and several others related to the many convictions obtained as part of the Mueller investigation. The apparent direct intervention by Donald Trump's Attorney General Bill Barr in this case to help the president's longtime friend does not appear to be the only instance of him having done so of late. NBC News reported 
uh, still later on Tuesday that the U.S. attorney who had presided over a criminal investigation into former acting FBI director Andrew McCabe was abruptly removed from the job last month in one of several recent moves by Attorney General Bill Barr to take control of legal matters of personal interest to Donald Trump. A person familiar with the matter confirmed to NBC News that Trump has rescinded the nomination of Jesse Liu, who had been the U.S. attorney for Washington, D.C., for a job as undersecretary at the Treasury Department. Liu also supervised the case against Trump associate Roger Stone. But that was not the first time senior political appointees had reached into a case involving a former Trump aide, according to NBC. Senior officials at the DOJ also, apparently last month, intervened to help change the government's sentencing recommendation for Trump's former national security advisor, Michael Flynn. He had pleaded guilty to lying to the FBI. The prosecutors in that case had recommended up to six months in jail, but their latest filing now says they believe probation would be appropriate with no time in jail. That new filing came on the same day that Lou was removed from her job last month as U.S. attorney to be replaced the next day by a former prosecutor selected by Barr personally himself, Lou had been overseeing the criminal investigation into McCabe, uh, who was accused by the department's uh, inspector general of lying to investigators. McCabe, however, has not been charged despite calls by Trump for McCabe to go to prison. Uh, And Lou's confirmation hearing for her new post that she was being moved into at Treasury, that was scheduled to take place Uh, On Thursday, when she would no doubt have been asked about all of this by senators, considering the nomination from which she was withdrawn yesterday by Trump. The resignations and the unusual moves by Barr come as Trump has sought revenge against government officials who honored lawful congressional subpoenas to testify in the House impeachment investigation. In the days since the Senate acquitted him, just not even one week ago, Trump has fired his ambassador to the European Union, who was a political supporter that he nominated. And he's had other officials, including top Ukraine expert and decorated Iraq War veteran Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman and his twin brother moved out of the White House and off of the National Security Council. In the Stone case... A new filing on Tuesday says the previous recommendation uh, for seven to nine years, quote, does not accurately reflect the Department of Justice's position on what would be a reasonable sentence in this matter. A nine year sentence, quote, could be considered excessive and unwarranted under the circumstances, according to the filing. Uh, The uh, prosecutors, whoever the new prosecutors are, declined to recommend a specific term and instead asked the judge to consider a, quote, appropriate sentence. David Lofman, a former counterintelligence chief for the Justice Department on Twitter, called all of this a, quote, shocking, crammed down political intervention in the criminal justice process, adding we are now truly at a break glass in case of fire moment for the Justice Department. It sure seems like it. 
And given that the DOJ has uh, incorrectly, in my opinion, declared that a president cannot be indicted, and now uh, U.S. Senate Republicans in their no-witness, no-documents rigged impeachment trial in the U.S. Senate last week have declared this president cannot be impeached, Donald Trump's claims that he can do whatever he wants under Article 2 of the U.S. Constitution is looking to be more and more the case every day. So uh, what is going on here, and is it indeed time to break some glass? Joining us now is someone who may know or certainly has an opinion about it, I suspect. Lisa Graves is former Deputy Assistant Attorney General at the U.S. Justice Department. She's former Chief Counsel for Nominations in the U.S. Senate, and she's a former Deputy Chief for the U.S. Court System. She is now founder of TrueNorthResearch.org, a new watchdog group advancing core American values, according to their website, through researching the forces distorting our democracy. Sounds like she will be busy. Lisa Graves, uh, welcome back to the broadcast. Oh, Brad, thank you so much for having me on, and thank you for that, you know, really compelling introduction about what's been happening just in the last 24 hours of yeah. the last couple of weeks. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, sure. My pleasure. And it was a lot to cram in there, but there's a lot that has gone on in just these past uh, 24 hours. I, I sort of want to hit each of them, if I can. The, the the prosecutors quitting the Stone case, the withdrawn nomination for this former U.S. attorney uh, who oversaw the case, uh, and the move to recommend no jail time at all in the Michael Flynn case. But first, I guess, big picture. Lisa Graves, is this as terrible as it sounds? Uh, wh what is your general take on, on what seems to be going on here? Well, this is really a crisis, and it's hard to say that given that we are in the midst of an ongoing crisis based on what the Republicans in the Senate did this past month mm -hmm. and what the president is up to. This is a crisis that is really unparalleled in the history, the modern history of the Justice Department. And it's a constitutional crisis, and it's really an existential crisis, because this is an active assault on the rule of law in this country. Mm. And this is uh, an absolute, you know, confirmed and repeated breach of the independence of the Justice Department. And I think that uh, I don't know what's going to happen next, but I know that this is, um, this is really tragic, what's happened and what's being allowed to happen. And I'm, I'm not sure how... It can be fixed, given the fact that the Justice Department has been so corrupted by this president and by his willing hand maiden, uh, Bill Barr. In in uh, you worked for many years as a prosecutor, including as deputy assistant attorney general uh, during the was it the the Clinton administration, uh, Lisa? Well, I wasn't a prosecutor, but I worked on criminal justice policy um, ah. as deputy assistant attorney general in the office of policy development and legal policy. I was a career appointee, and mm -hmm. so I worked under both um, Ms. Reno and, for a brief time, Mr. Ashcroft, until I left to go to work for the U.S. courts. Gotcha. So I worked with a lot of a lot of U.S. attorneys and U.S. attorney offices um, in that work, but I didn't prosecute cases. Mm -hmm. um, in this in this instance, though, you know, certainly seeing those four prosecutors step down from that case, the idea that they cut and run is absurd. They did the only thing they ethically could do in the face of this completely improper uh, political partisan interference by this president uh, to aid his friend and compatriot in the um, activities that he's been engaged in. And so the idea that Barr would 
uh, intervene at the top of the death front would intervene in this way is really outrageous. It mm-hmm. shows, it signals yet again that Barr is acting as if he's the president's personal attorney and disregarding the actual mission of the Justice Department and its history and traditions of independence from political pressure by presidents to get involved in any prosecution, let alone the prosecution of someone close to the president, and to dictate the sentencing is absurd. This, this sort of behavior is turning America into a banana republic. Mm. Um, you know, Trump really is, in, in essence, a banana Republican. But mm-hmm. what's happened is it's not even really Republicanism anymore. It's Trumpism. Yeah. And Trumpism has infected the Justice Department at the highest level. And it, it's, you know, to, to use famous words from the Nixon impeachment effort, it is a cancer on the Justice Department, what this president is doing. It completely undermines the integrity of that institution. During your ten- tenure, uh, under, I guess, both Bush and Clinton then, what, was there ever a case... That, that you're familiar with, where, uh, you know, a top official at the department might have di- disagreed with line prosecutors about, you know, really anything, uh, in this case, about sentencing, what the sentencing should be, as now appears to be the case in both the Stone and Flynn cases. And if there was such an agreement, we, what would be the proper procedure to work that out? Presumably, it would not be by, you know, the prosecutors filing one thing uh, and then uh, the, the top officials coming in and saying, no, no, we've changed our mind. Here's the actual uh, uh, paperwork in this case. What would be, is there a process for d- working through those disagreements before they become public? Well, I, I will tell you from the Clinton administration a period, I can't recall a single instance of that sort of interference in any way. Mm-hmm. You know, there certainly were uh, regular conversations with the U.S. Attorney's offices about priorities, like, you know, sort of gun crime, drug crime, things like that, um, kind of what were the priorities of, of how, um, how offices were using their resources. But the intervention in an individual case to set aside the work of the career prosecutors to, um, to enforce the law of the United States, I, I don't know a single instance. Now, um, when I after I left the Justice Department, when uh, Mr. Ashcroft, after he became Attorney General, I learned after the fact that there was an instance of um, incredible intervention that occurred um, it, during that spring of 2001, which was when the Bush administration sought to negotiate down and basically dismiss almost every charge against Coke Industries when it was facing you know, a 98-count indictment mm. for, um, for its activities, its, you know, polluting and other activities, uh, and that was, that was basically reduced to, I think, two or three counts and a $20 million fine when it was facing the largest fine in U.S. history, and it turned out that Charles Koch and David Koch were big donors to George W. Bush. Mm-hmm. So I can't say that there hasn't been intervention. That, seeing that after the fact, was shocking when I learned that that had happened that spring um, of 2001 in the Bush administration. But in terms of what happened this, this past week, just yesterday, in, in this investigation of, of Mr. Stone, the idea that the top of the department would ever be dictating to prosecutors what they can call for a sentence of a person who um, has been convicted of a crime. In the, in the Koch instance, that was an indictment. Mm-hmm. There was not yet a conviction. Right. This is a conviction. 
And I, I don't know if anything it also, that has happened. It, it also, in the, I remember the Koch case, it also sort of spanned two different administrations. Uh, and we've seen that, you know, for example, even with this administration, and it was strange when it happened, when uh, you get a new administration, the administration uh, has a different outlook on things, and they might change something. They, for example, reverse their position in, uh, you know, the Texas uh, photo ID uh, voting case, as I recall, uh, and and on the Affordable Care Act uh, between two different administrations. But for the same administration to bring a case, to win a conviction, to seek a a sentencing, and then to have someone come in and say, no, that sentencing is wrong after a president of the United States is taken to Twitter to say this is, uh, you know, an outrageous uh, number. I mean, this seems remarkable. Obviously, it is remarkable. And now, Lisa Graves, sentencing recommendations are generally handled. Correct me here if I if I have this right. Uh, aren't they generally handled as per written guidelines? A certain amount of time is recommended for each count, along with you know various uh, mitigating factors, such as when a defendant has cooperated with prosecutors, but it's sort of a, a, a mathematical formula that the judge can then uh, take under advice and essentially charge whatever he or she uh, believes is appropriate. Am, am I understanding that correctly? That's correct. There's actually both a, a manual for, for prosecutors in terms of those recommendations, and there's also a sentencing guidelines that federal judges take into account or mm-hmm. required to take into account. And so in this instance, you have a man uh, in Roger Stone who was convicted for obstruction and lying and, you know, is uh, recalcitrant, unrepentant, no mitigation, no assistance, and was actively trying to obstruct Congress and actively trying to um, hide what was happening in that instance. And there was testimony under oath that was uh, accepted as credible testimony of his crimes. And so you have a man who, who has been found guilty of these crimes and you have a president who is acting in the most lawless, uh, authoritarian, sort of dictatorial way to interfere in the sentencing of his friend. That is, that is fundamentally corruption. That is absolute disregard for the rule of law and for the independence of the Justice Department. The Justice Department should not be in the business of prosecuting the president's enemies and aiding the president's friends. That is uh, fundamentally inconsistent with the notion of justice. And this president wants to behave like he's a king. This, this is, you know, unheard of really in, in modern American history and the history as we know it. And I, I would just say, when I worked at the Justice Department um, on criminal policy and civil policy and judges, it was an honor to walk into that department and feel like I was working with people who had integrity. Mm-hmm. Um, engraved in the door above the Justice Department on Pennsylvania Avenue, it says the place of justice is a hallowed place. That's, you know, part of the mission, the notion that people in that building are going to put aside their personal views, their any partisan views, and do justice. And President Trump has pissed all over that with the aid of Bill Barr, who has no, who really should never have been confirmed to that position of trust as Attorney General of the United States. The, and, and I just want to be clear on, on, on one point there to, to make sure I understand this. Uh, the In the case of this, uh, this sentencing, uh, they, they do it by the book. They come out with seven to nine years. If the judge in this case felt that this was uh, out of line, was outrageous, was inappropriate in some fashion, she would have been perfectly uh, capable of changing that sentencing to anything she wanted, right? 
That's right. The the recommendation of the prosecutor prosecution is just a recommendation. Okay. <clears throat> it's not binding on the judge. The judge can look at the facts of the case and make a determination that's independent of the recommendation of the prosecutor. And and then we have Donald Trump attacking the judge on on, on Twitter. The and and I guess uh, you know uh, sort of all of these questions uh, sort of end with. Uh, you know, have we ever seen anything like that before? I mean, is is that in any way uh, precedented or even appropriate? Well, I'm as the person who was formerly the chief counsel for nominations for the Senate Judiciary Committee, uh-huh. and as someone who worked on judicial nominations at the Justice Department and has studied uh, these issues, I've studied these issues for many years, decades now. I I know of no quote precedent other than the president of this very president in attacking. Uh, judges and attacking them personally and trying to pressure them and um, and trying to humiliate them because he has no regard for the independence of the judiciary. He thinks of everything as an ex- as an extension that appears of his own power and his own ego. This sort of effort to intimidate the federal judge in that case is outrageous. It's unacceptable. It's outside of the, the norm for any president and for the executive branch, branch quite frankly, to be acting this way towards the judiciary. The uh, uh, Peter uh, Zeindenberg, I think is his name, a, uh, a former prosecutor who worked for the uh, D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office, uh, sort of echoed uh, something that you said, Lisa Graves. He said this: uh, the message that all of this sends is that there is one set of rules for most defendants and another far more lenient set of rules for cronies of the president. It's clear. It's obvious that, you know, no one else gets treatment like this in in the uh, in the justice system, like we're seeing for Stone. And apparently this happened a month ago and and somehow we didn't notice it for Michael Flynn, where they've recommended no uh, jail time for him either after previously recommending up to six months. So, you know, I guess the question at this point is, uh, yes, this Justice Department is out of control. What, if anything, can be done to change any of this? I mean, uh, I guess Bill Barr is a a secretary, a cabinet secretary, a cabinet level official, I guess. Can he be impeached? Well, any executive official could be impeached uh, by the House. Uh, The Senate has demonstrated, the Senate Republicans have demonstrated that they don't want to hear or see evidence uh, relating to this president. Uh, and his behavior, and obviously Barr's actions are completely intertwined with Trump's in this in this case, doing his bidding um, and denigrating the department to aid his boss. So, you know, there certainly is action that the House could take um, and to investigate this and, and perhaps bring an impeachment charge against Mr. Barr. It's also possible that there could be even a trial, theoretically. In the meantime, however, you know, there is an election coming up, and so uh, what the... What the Senate Republicans have done in a way is to, I suppose, force the hand of the American people to, as they refuse to actually pursue justice and have a fair trial, and instead Mr. McConnell, Senator McConnell rigged that trial to aid his ally, Mm -hmm. Mr. Trump, Um, they're leaving it to the American people to vote them out of office, to vote Trump out of office. I say that in my personal capacity, not on behalf of my organization, Mm -hmm. but, you know, that's the only alternative that they've left. There's no... Um, as you pointed out at the beginning, Barr has erroneously claimed that this president cannot be indicted by any criminal prosecutor, which is, I think, a complete misreading of the Constitution. This Republican-controlled Senate 
has has shown, has demonstrated that it's willing to put the interests of, of the party and power over the command of the Constitution and the rule of law. And in some ways, the president has also indicated that he thinks he, he owns a majority of that U.S. Supreme Court. And so the only alternative that people have in this country right now, it appears, is to take a stand against this lawlessness and against this sort of utter contempt for the rule of law. The idea that this president, who has lied so prolifically, doesn't want people charged with lying, lying, <laughs> uh, as with the case of Mr. Flynn, right. or uh, obstructing prosecution, um, or lying in the case of Mr. Stone. It, I mean, it's, it's no, it's no surprise that this president wouldn't want someone prosecuted for lying, since he's a liar uh, and a prolific one. But that's not what the law says, particularly when you're involved in an investigation. There are consequences for lying to Congress. There are consequences for lying to the Justice Department or to federal prosecutors. And there need to be in order to uphold the rule of law. But in this instance, you have, or these instances, you have the contempt of those principles, which this president, you know, swore an oath to uphold Mm -hmm. when he swore the oath to become the president of the United States. So I don't know, other than the power of the people, how we're going to get out of this. And 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 not only uh, were they charged with uh, with lying, with lying to Congress, lying to the FBI. Uh, one of the charges in the Stone case was for, I think, uh, contempt of Congress or obstruction of Congress, which is essentially the, the other thing that uh, Donald Trump was himself charged with in the uh, in the articles of impeachment. Uh, very quickly, uh, Lisa, what do you make of this? Um, this withdrawal of the nomination of the uh, now former U.S. attorney in D.C., Jesse Liu. She was set to uh, be a, 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 a senior uh, official in the Treasury Department. She was supposed to stay on in her job as U.S. attorney until she was replaced. Uh, stay on in the job as U.S. attorney while you know her, her confirmation was pending. But she was replaced last month on the same day that Michael Flynn's charges. The prosecutors changed their recommendation there. Apparently, I mean, is this a case of she knew too much and they did not want her to testify on uh, on Thursday in her confirmation hearing because all of this stuff would come up? Well, I wonder. I, I, I do hope that Congress, the House, invites her to testify before it and tell them the story of how this happened because this sort of vindictiveness, uh, the, the venality of this president, the use of his office, you know, combined with the power of Bill Barr, the head of Justice Department, to remove prosecutors, to, you know, change sentencing recommendations. You know, obviously they have the power to nominate whom they choose, but this sort of intervention uh, at the staffing level uh, in this way is really extraordinary. And so I don't know. I do hope that she testifies. I don't know what she'll say about what happened or what didn't happen. Uh, It could have been an effort to try to protect further probing Mm -hmm. of this issue, but Congress should call her. And I think Congress uh, should pursue subpoenas for anyone going forward who declines to testify or where there's an implicit or explicit claim by this president of executive privilege to prevent someone from testifying well, before Congress. they can subpoena all they want, but Donald Trump has proven that uh, he can order his people to defy subpoenas. And, and that in that case, nothing will also be done, that there is nothing that uh, can be done by Congress, at least while you have uh, Republicans in the U.S. Senate refusing to do so. Although we do have this uh, news just before airtime today, Lisa, um, Axios is reporting that Bill Barr has agreed to testify to the U.S. House Judiciary Committee. I'm not sure when that will occur. 
but I suspect a lot of people will be watching. Uh, oh, it's March March 31. Okay, so not so it's going to be another month and a half or so before that ever happens, if it ever happens. Yeah, uh, I was going to say if. Yeah, if. count yeah. me as dubious at this point. Lisa, before I let you go, um, if, as you say, voters do their job and remove this uh, wildly unfit, destructive, authoritarian uh, president from office, and uh, whoever he is replaced with, let's say a Democrat, any of them, take your pick. From what you know about your years working at the Department of Justice, can this mess be restored? Can this be uh, fixed? Or has the damage been uh, so bad at the DOJ that it will be um, years with you know people in place now uh, for years under the from this administration that uh, this can never be fixed is, is this unfixable i think it's fixable if you have someone of integrity who becomes the attorney general of the united states someone who will act independent of the president and will not just affirm to be independent but actually be independent of the president however it's also the case that a lot of people have been burrowed in to the administration mm-hmm. by this president a lot of people who are extreme partisans and who are, you know, perhaps not even suited to the jobs that they've been appointed to. Um, that those could be career positions, not just political positions. And so that sort of burrowing in, you know, is significant. Also, the loss, the loss of skilled people, experienced people from these agencies, not just the Justice Department, but the Department of Agriculture, the Department mm-hmm. of Interior, the EPA, the Education Department. People who've left because these agencies have been so skewed and so. Um, in, in many ways deteriorated by the appointees the president has chosen. But that's a brain loss. That's a loss of the American people mm-hmm. to have lost these civil servants. I don't know if they'll come back in a new administration yeah. if there is one soon. That's what I'm hoping and praying is that some of these folks, many of them I know patriots, uh, will be willing to come back to uh, to save the country, though you know at departments like the uh, DOJ, we made you know they may need their own truth and reconciliation uh, committee to well, work out this Pentagon, mess. Though, yeah, the Pentagon though, if you see that situation where this president has treated uh, Mr. Vindman with such disrespect while exalting a war criminal, that uh, effect on yeah. the Pentagon and the Defense Department, uh, I don't know what that effect is going to be down the road. I don't think anyone does, and it is as chilling as it sounds, and I think it is a uh, break-the-glass moment. Uh, Lisa Graves, a former Deputy Assistant Attorney General at the U.S. Justice Department, former Chief Counsel for Nominations in the U.S. Senate, former Deputy Chief for the U.S. Court System, uh, now founder of TrueNorthResearch.org. You can find her on the Twitters at Lisa, uh, at the Lisa Graves. And Lisa, really appreciate you joining us. I know uh, you've been on doctor's orders uh, recently with some laryngitis that you weren't able to uh, speak during the impeachment when we wanted to talk to you as well. And I suspect you wanted to scream, but I'm glad <laughs> you're uh, available to scream a little bit now, Lisa. Really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you so much, Brad. I really appreciate it. You bet. Okay. Quick break, and uh, we're back with our closing few minutes. Running late, as always. But don't go away. We'll have something for you. I'm Brad. This is the Bradcast.
What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter, and we do it all independently without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Well, yeah, you'd have to be blind to not see it at this point, it seems to me. (laughs) True, but I do want to highlight the takeaway from Lisa Graves. She said that the damage to the Department of Justice is repairable. It can be repaired. It can be restored. We just got to elect the right people. We got to elect, by right people, I'd say anybody but Donald Trump (laughs) at this point. Okay. Hey, a quick listener email here from Dave, who says it was his birthday this week. Oh, happy birthday, Dave. Happy birthday, Dave. Uh, mail to bradcast at bradblog.com. Subject, proposals. Number one, installation of a presidential body camera. Not a bad idea. Okay. I don't think that would be allowed, but not a bad idea with this president. Uh, Number two, as is followed in other cases of those that have perpetrated violence, as in mass shooting incidents, perhaps we should institute the same policy for our president that incites such activities by refusing to name him and then extrapolate to no longer covering him in any way. Stop saying his name or showing his image. Stop repeating his statements. Stop trying to figure out what the sociopath might say do or think just stop thanks enjoy your show dave uh okay dave <laughs> uh, well i hear you dave i wish we could that sounds swell i hate talking about him but you know after this uh, story we just discussed with uh, lisa graves i'm not sure you know if you ignore him he will be doing even more of that if that's possible uh, so as much as I hate to keep covering him, yeah, we're going to have to. Hope that didn't ruin your birthday, Dave. But I do appreciate the note. You can drop me email as well. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I hope you'll find, follow, and share everything we do there. You'll find me at the Brad Blog. And my thanks, of course, as ever, to our producer, Desi Doyen, and my guest today, Lisa Graves of True North Research. If you missed any portion of today's program... Download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. That is made possible by listeners like you. Yes, you. We are 100% listener supported. So my thanks to those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help keep us on the air for, well, at least one more election if we can make it with your help. All right, that's it. Until we meet again tomorrow, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs>